Our sermon text is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, if you'll find that in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it on page 800 in the Bible that's in front of you, the Black Pew Bible, page 800. Uh, we are, this morning, uh, going to read and talk about the high point of the whole Gospel of Mark. We, we've been in Mark since the beginning of the school year, so it's been a while. And today, it's the climax. Uh, Jesus is handed over to be killed, and he's put on a cross, uh, which doesn't seem like a climax, but according to Mark, it was Jesus' greatest moment of glory. Now, I realize, and if you've been around Greater Hope for a long time, you know this, we always talk about the cross. Uh, I was thinking this week, I, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon where I didn't mention the cross. And I'm happy about that. I don't regret that. I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, because the cross is the theme of Scripture, and it's the only hope of the world. Amen? Amen. But it is very uh, rare that we, actually kind of rare, that we get to actually look at the event of the cross in detail, which is what we're going to do this morning. That's important for this reason. I want you to think about this. Christianity is not a religion primarily of ideas, mere ideas. Yeah, it's not a religion merely of theories. Christianity is a religion of events, happenings, occurrences, things that happened, as Francis Schaeffer said, in time and space, right here in this same world that we live in. And so 2,000 years ago, we believe this really happened. Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem, and all the details here are true, and all that they communicate to us are the hope that we have for our life and in our death. Let's read, read starting in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! 
And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. How do you respond when somebody acts unexpectedly? Happens a lot, doesn't it? And and sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's not. For example, um, it could be a stranger out on the street or in the store driving erratically or acting unexpectedly. That could cause fear and kind of a sense of wanting to get away from them, giving them their space. It could be very sad. It could be somebody very close to you that's acting towards you in a way you didn't expect. It was out of character. It may frustrate you, break your heart, maybe even make you angry, want to shake them. Or it could be even humorous. If you think about it, all, all humor it actually is rooted in the unexpected. You're expecting one thing and boom, here comes the other and everybody laughs. No matter what, when something unexpected happens, when someone acts in an unexpected way, a strong reaction is provoked. That's what we see here. In Mark's telling of the cross, those six hours that Friday when Jesus was carried by Pilate away to the hill called Golgotha and crucified from the hours of 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. There is a lot of unexpected behavior. 
Did you notice uh, how many times in the passage we read Jesus is referred to as the king? This is one of the things that's unique to Mark's telling of it. He, he repeats it over and over again. The king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. Everybody is saying the king of the Jews. And yet, how unexpected is it that the one they call king is being treated like this? And he's not even doing anything to stop it. Here's the mystery of the cross. It shows you that Jesus is a king like no other king. And Lord helping us, I want to show you three ways that that is true this morning. If you'll look at your bulletin, there are three things about this king that are revealed in the cross. First of all, the cross is the king's ransom. That's in verses 1 to 15. Then the cross is the king's crown in verses 16 to 32. And finally, the cross is the king's victory in verses 33 to 39. Let's look together. First of all, at the king's ransom. Did you notice there in verse 1 how the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the Jewish leaders, had delivered Jesus over to Pilate? We talk about Pilate a lot. Actually, it's in our Apostles' Creed every time we say it. We believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And maybe sometimes you, you ask, well, why, why did Pilate get into the Apostles' Creed? Why did this bad guy make it into the Christian statement of faith that we've used for 2,000 years? And here's the reason, because the Gospels make a big deal about this. Uh, the Jews, under Roman rule, could not legally put anyone to death. Uh, one of the things about Roman control is that they reserved the right of capital punishment for themselves, which is actually a very smart thing to do, right? If you're going to oppress and rule over a people, you don't want them to have that much power, and so you keep it for your own. There were times where the Jews would use mob violence. Maybe they would mob somebody and stone them, but that was not endorsed by Rome. That was mob violence. To have an official sentence of execution carried out, they had to go to the Romans. And so they marched Jesus, as soon as it was daybreak on that Friday, they marched Jesus to Pilate's headquarters right there in the middle of Jerusalem, right in the middle of all the hustle and bustle. And you get this scene told to us that is so remarkable. You have a representative of the kingdom of Rome meeting behind closed doors with a representative of the king of heaven. Isn't that a fascinating conversation to overhear? Uh, Caesar and his representative is there with God and his king and representative Jesus, and they are speaking to one another. Caesar or Pilate has questions for Jesus. Jesus, are you really a king? Did you notice that there in verse 2? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so, which I don't think that we're to take that as if Jesus were being a smart aleck, although it does in a way sound that way. And I don't think we should take it either as if Jesus were trying to be uh, obscure or mysterious. I think he's affirming what Pilate says in a way that affirms that he knows Pilate said it. You said, you, old representative of Rome, you said I'm the king of the Jews. You've said it. It's true. I own it. I'm the king. And yet notice in verse 5, what amazes Pilate about this king? What amazes Pilate about this king? It's that he is being accused of things that even Pilate knows he is not guilty of. 
And yet, just like we saw last week, Jesus stands there refusing to give an answer in his own behalf. He's refused to hire a lawyer. He's refused to make a single argument to get himself off. They accused him of treason. Jesus was never treasonous. And yet there he stands as if he were a traitor. And Pilate just doesn't even know how to explain that. He doesn't know how to make sense of that. You see, the kingdoms of this world have different values than the kingdom of heaven. And the kings of this world are very different people than the, kingdom, than the king of the kingdom of heaven, right? They, we always, by nature, want to serve ourselves, number one. And when we get more power, we get more ability to do that, to serve the self. And usually people take that opportunity. And yet here you have a king whom Pilate recognizes as innocent who is choosing not to take care of himself, but choosing instead to basically plead guilty through silence to the charge of treason, punishable by death. That becomes even more clear there in verses 6 through 15, where you see this dramatic scene play out. As Pilate goes public with their conversation, and he's trying to get Jesus off because he knows Jesus is innocent. He's Pilate has a conscience, after all. He's a human being, so he feels bad, and he's trying to get Jesus off. And yet, his, his plan backfires. He says, I, I will release for you a prisoner, something Pilate did every year at Passover. He pardoned one of the Jewish prisoners so that he could keep some peace with the Jewish people. They did not have a good relationship, so he would always sort of throw them a bone so that they would have peace again for another year. Except this time, instead of asking for Jesus to be released, which is what Pilate wanted, what did they do? They asked for Barabbas. Now, how does it describe Barabbas? He had committed murder. I'm reading verse 7. He committed murder in the insurrection. Meaning... Exactly what Jesus is being accused of, but Jesus didn't do, this guy actually did. And he went so far with it that he killed somebody, maybe somebody's. I mean, there's a likelihood here that this is an example of one of the many Jewish religious terrorists that would attack every so often under Roman rule. It happened all the time. He was probably one of those terrorists. And yet, as he's being let go... Get this picture in your mind. Barabbas walks away scot-free. Jesus is being put in chains and scourged by the Roman whip. You got that picture in your head? The guilty man goes free. The innocent sufferer is scourged and delivered to be crucified. And right there you've got it. The cross contains a beautiful glory even though it's hidden. And the glory is this, the glory of a ransom. Jesus Christ was paying a price for someone else. You and I, guilty as we are, stained as we are, get to go free. We get to be what the Bible calls justified, which means we are treated as if we have never sinned. We're treated as if we've done only righteous things our whole life. How in the world can God treat us that way? Because he put Jesus to death in our place. Because the perfect righteousness of Jesus, instead of him getting the credit for it, he gave us the credit for it. And here goes the guilty free, and here goes Jesus down into death. 
the great exchange, the beauty of the Christian gospel. There's a song that says, it's a great hymn, it says, In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Do you know what it says next? Hallelujah, what a Savior. And if you're listening to me this morning, I think you're saying that at least silently in your heart, right? Hallelujah, what a Savior. He did not go free so that I could go free. In fact, the word in, instead of is actually used in verse 11 very dramatically by Mark. The crowd wanted Barabbas released instead. It's a key word, instead. Instead means in the place of, standing where somebody else deserves to stand. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The cross is a king's ransom where he paid all that he had so that sinners like me and you could go free. Imagine how hard that must have been for Jesus. Go back in your school days. Were you ever guilty by association when you were a kid? Did they ever get you in trouble because somebody who was standing next to you did something wrong? How'd that feel? It's the worst, right? Immediately, you're just, that ain't me. Miss, I didn't do it. That was him. That was them. But we're trying to put as much distance between ourselves and the real guilt as possible. And yet, notice the marvel of Jesus Christ. Just notice it. He willingly gets guilty by association. Not just for one person's one act, but for all the acts of sin that his people have committed from the time they were born to the time they die. For all time. All those sins. He became guilty by association. So that we, by association with him, could become righteous. One writer puts it really well. He says, Jesus was uh, willing to be classed as one of the wicked so that he might admit us to the society of the holy angels. Jesus was willing to be classed as one of the wicked so that he might admit us into the society of the holy angels. The cross is a king's ransom. But secondly, I want you to see there in verses 16 to 32 that the cross is also the king's great crown. Jesus is crowned in verses 16 to 32. Did you hear that when we read it? He was crowned. In fact, he was robed like a king. He had a scepter in his hand. Uh, foreigners came and bowed before him and acknowledged him as king, and they begged him to speak, prophesy to us. They begged for his words to be told. Except, what did they mean by that, all that? Evil, cruel, gross mockery. The crown was a crown of thorns, brambles just kind of twisted together to make a painful and very shameful crown. The scepter was a reed. The purple cloak was a faded old rug or carpet or something that they found just lying around that they put on top of him. The, the words that they took, hail king of the Jews, they didn't mean a word of it. They meant the opposite. They spit on him. They hit him over the head with a stick. Their command for Jesus to prophesy was not a sincere desire to hear from God. It, it was instead a mockery. And it, got, it gets worse. 
Uh, as Jesus goes out to the cross, as he's crucified at around uh, 9 a.m., they begin the crucifixion in verse 25. Other people start joining in the mockery. It tells us that there's just passers-by. I mean, just think about that. Just people walking by, strangers just begin to join in. And they said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down from the cross now. If you're so great, if you could rebuild a temple in three days, then save yourself. Shame. And then to add insult to injury, there is in verse 31, the religious leaders themselves. The people who should have known better. Uh, they, they spent their whole life reading the Bible, for goodness sake, reading the Old Testament. And yet these men and these folks said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And all God's people said, yeah, right. They weren't going to believe. It wouldn't have matter what Jesus did. They weren't going to believe. Their heart was full of venom. Now, I want you to hear something. This is ugly. Uh, no darker day, I don't think, has ever been in this world than this one, where the purest of persons was treated with such shame and abuse. And yet, I want you to see, those who mocked inadvertently preached the gospel ahead of time. They didn't know that's what they were doing. They thought they were making fun of Jesus and really scoring some points on him. And boop, see there, I told you. He was, no, he was a nobody. And yet in their very words, they are telling us what Jesus is doing on the cross. I mean, just think about each one of those. Hail the king of the Jews, where, where Roman soldiers bow before Jesus. Is that not what would happen when Jesus rose from the dead? Is it not what would happen that the gospel would go throughout the world and people from every nation language and tongue would come and bow before King Jesus and worship his name and call on him to prophesy, teach us Jesus. Is that not the reason why we're here this morning? The cross worked. And then, think about it. If you can raise the temple in three days and rebuild it, then save yourself. Is that not what Jesus would do three days later? Yeah, I grant it. He wouldn't raise a stone temple, but he would raise his body, which is what the stone temple was meant to symbolize. The temple was about the Messiah and his work. He was the Messiah. He would raise the temple in three days so that all of us would have a temple to dwell in with God. And then, my favorite of all, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Wasn't it true that it was precisely because he was saving others that he did not save himself? They tried to mock, but instead they inadvertently praised Jesus Christ. And therefore their words are recorded. And we get to hear him. This is something that I want you to hear. It's unexpected. And it requires a real response from you. The cross does not look like much on the outside, but it contains treasure within. You ever watch Antiques Roadshow? I rarely do, but from time to time I do, and I, I do like the show. It's interesting. Most of the time, people have think they have something when they have nothing, right? But every now and then, they're not sure what they have. They think it's just grandma's doodad they found in the attic somewhere, and they bring it in. 
only to find out it's worth a million pounds or dollars, whichever one you happen to be watching, the British or the American version. It's worth a ton of money. They, they had no idea they were sitting on treasure. The cross is like that. In fact, it's like that in this way. It, just like it takes a trained appraiser's eye to appraise an antique. It takes a trained appraiser's eye to appraise the cross. Most of the world joins in the mockery. Most of the world joins in the mockery because they do not have eyes trained to appraise the cross. But the Holy Spirit brings to men and women, boys and girls, the training they need to appraise the cross rightly. He opens our eyes. He helps us see what really is contained in the cross, what really was being accomplished there. Although it looked like gory, terrible suffering. And it was. Yet in it, Jesus Christ was being crowned with eternal glory forever. People may mock. Those who have the Holy Spirit know better. Except, I don't know about you, but I find in my life, though, I have received the Holy Spirit, though I believe in Jesus. I find that in subtle ways, I too join the mockers. How about you? No, I don't say the things that are listed here. Of course, I don't. But here's some things I do. When I'm in trouble, I doubt his presence. When the lights go out in the world or in a situation, I doubt his compassion. Does he really care? Is he really with me? How could God allow? When I'm dealing with a particularly bad sin or habit, I doubt his ability to save or heal me or change me. When I'm staring at a hard-hearted person, I doubt he's able to change them. Every one of those ways, it's like looking at the cross through the mocker's eyes. Jesus can't do anything about that. Can't even save himself. The Holy Spirit given eyes of a cross appraiser understand that there is no one who can't be changed. There is no place you can go to flee from his presence. There is no darkness that is not light to him. There is nothing you can do or no place you can go that causes his, his compassion to cease. The cross says God loves you ceaselessly in an abounding manner, as if his heart, the heart of God himself, was opened up and outflowed love. Let's don't mock Jesus. Let's instead apply every day. You should do this every day. Apply the cross and its treasure to your life. Apply it to your circumstance. Apply it to your situation. Are you sad? There's a cross to apply. Are you happy? There's a cross to apply. Are you anxious? There's a cross to apply. Are you guilty? A cross to apply. Uh, are, do you hate somebody because of what they did to you? Cross to apply. 
Are you tired? Are you bored? Cross to apply. Instead of joining the mocking voices, those who have received the Holy Spirit ought to stand up like the centurion who later in the passage professes, this is the Son of God. Anyone can be changed. The sins of the deepest die can be forgiven. Wow, what a wonderful cross. Now lastly, the cross is not only the king's ransom and the king's crown, it's also the king's victory. And we see this in verses 33 through 39. Now I'll grant you, if you look at verse 33, this doesn't seem like victory. I, I get it. When the sixth hour had come, noon, that's noon, by the way, six hours noon, uh, there was darkness over the whole land till the ninth hour, till 3 o'clock. That doesn't seem like victory. Darkness in the middle of the day, I mean, that's like a solar eclipse or a storm. or Is that not victory? And then to add to it, at the ninth hour, at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out with a loud voice the words we sang earlier from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that doesn't seem like victory at all. He thinks God has abandoned him apparently. Wow, this seems like failure, not victory. And yet I hope, as we were singing earlier Psalm 22, or as we were reading it off the page, I hope you noticed something. Psalm 22 is not just about a person entering into the depths of suffering. It's also about a person going through suffering out into light so that he can praise God. Did you notice that? In fact, the Bible tells us that David wrote Psalm 22. But it tells us in the New Testament, David did not write it for himself. He didn't write it about himself. He wrote it from Jesus. The Spirit of Christ, it says, was pointing to the sufferings and the glory that the Christ would undergo. In other words, what I'm telling you this morning is 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross, he prepared a song for himself on the cross by giving it to David. And he prepared it that far ahead so that as he was a little boy growing up as a man, he would learn and memorize that song so that he would know it. And he would grab it to sing it. And that song takes us into the depths. And in fact, all the details of the cross are laid out in that psalm. They, they pierce my hands and feet. They count all my bones. They mock me. They say, where is your God now? Uh, they cast lots from my clothing. I mean, literally, it's unreal how close Psalm 22 is to the cross. And yet in it, Jesus says, Yet my fathers praised you, and you delivered them. I know you'll deliver me, and I will praise you. In fact, I will deliver people and gather them around myself, and I'll help them praise you too. Literally, it says, when I'm in the church, I will praise you with my brothers and sisters. That's what I mean. The cross is victory, not defeat. It looks like defeat, but it's defeat for a short time in the interest of an eternal victory. And here we are this morning, the brothers and sisters that Jesus has gathered thus far in this church. And there they are in all the churches around the world this morning gathered together. And there is Christ standing in the midst of them spiritually singing the psalms and hymns along with them.
Isn't that unexpected? It would have been hard to see it. In fact, most people didn't. Most people, when Jesus uttered his loud cry and breathed his last, they thought, okay, well, that's the end of that. Even some of the disciples were like, well, I guess we've reached the end of the line. And yet, there were some people who saw it different. For example, verse 38, there were a few priests, no doubt, that were in the temple attending the services there, as there always were. They were standing in the holy place, offering incense and and prayers and psalms in front of the curtain that hung between the holy and the most holy place. And it says, as soon as Jesus breathed his last at 3 p.m., the curtain tore from top to bottom, from top to bottom, as if God started the tear and let it rip all the way down to earth. Now, listen, we're not just talking here about interior design curtains. This is the curtain spoken of in the book of Leviticus. The curtain, it says. The veil. The the one that was a symbol of man's separation with his maker. In fact, on the front of the curtain was a cherubim angel. Just like the angel that stood guard at Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned, and the angel said, you can't come in here anymore. And suddenly, when Jesus breathed his last, the angel stood down. He dropped his fiery sword. And opened was a way for human beings to come back into the presence of God. Victory. A Roman soldier, a centurion, he was a leader among the Roman soldiers, saw this. I mean, he saw at least the way that Jesus died with such power and dignity and innocence. And he made one of the few great professions of faith that we read about in the Gospel of Mark. Truly, this man was the Son of God. He saw it. The way was open to him, and he went through the door. This phrase only appears three times in Mark. Mark 1.1, the title of the book, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Peter in Mark 8, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then here, by a raggedy heathen soldier who never would have been led into God's presence before because he was a Gentile, because he was a sinner. He had just gotten through mocking Jesus. And yet here it was. The curtain was ripped open and he saw it, he appraised it, and he declared it. And this morning to anyone in here who declares that same great truth based on the event of the crucifixion, The way is also open for you, and you can enter in. Have you ever invited people over and no one showed up? It happened to Stacy and I one time. Um, We were 22 years old, fresh, into marriage. We didn't have a kid yet, and we were trying to start a new small group in our church. And so we had a list of people that the church had given us, and we had been talking to them, and they had all kind of expressed interest. They wanted to come, and we told them we are going to have an initial meeting, a dinner, to get to know each other, and they were all said they were going to come. And 
Stacy cooked up a whole bunch of lasagna. A lot of it. Was it, was it lasagna? Okay. And the time came. Nobody came. We waited 10 minutes. Oh, they're just late. Nobody came. 15, nobody came. 20, nobody came. By 30, we were just eating the lasagna. <laughs> and we kept eating it for a while, if I remember right, because it was a lot. And, and that is how my career as a pastor started. <laughs> and it was good for me. I praise God for it. It taught me a lot of things. But it also hurt at the time. I was just 22. I didn't know what I was doing, and it, it kind of hurt. Now think. Now, I don't want to make the impression that Jesus is a weak 22-year-old who gets disappointed. Listen, he's a king. He will get you, right? He will experience the joy of his travail on the cross. No, no mistake about it. But I want to use this example to get you to hear the tragedy of not entering into what Jesus has opened. Imagine he's opened what the, what the Bible calls a new and living way through the curtain. And imagine the tragedy of any individual in this room not walking through that curtain. Imagine the tragedy of anybody in our city not walking through that curtain. It's a tragedy. What preparations have been made? What cost has been expended? What heart the host has for his people? And yet, they won't go in. What a tragedy. Also a tragedy is for those of us who have gone in that we don't daily take advantage of our access. Don't you agree? The door is always open. What Christ has opened, let no man shut. No man can shut, nor any woman. And yet sometimes we stay at our distance. We don't go in. We don't enjoy what God has given us through Jesus. Let me give you something in closing to read on your own this afternoon. Now, I want you to write it down if you will. Uh, it's Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. And I want you to go read it in detail. I don't have time to read it all to you right now, but I want you to read it. Because there in, uh, <clears throat> in chapter 10, starting in verse 19, it says, We have a new way open to us through the curtain that is his flesh. And then it gives us three let us do phrases. Three things we ought to do to enter in every day to what Jesus opened. Think about it. It says first, let us draw near with confidence. Meaning, it, it isn't good for a Christian to lack confidence before God. And you don't have to lack confidence before God if you're a Christian. We should daily exercise our confidence in the love of God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We ought not to compromise our beliefs. We ought to hang on to them and cling to them and stand for them no matter what happens, no matter what threats there are. And finally, let us stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as some people have the habit of doing. In other words, you've got to show up with God's people to encourage one another in the community that Jesus died to form. Listen, when you look at the cross, it's unexpected because you don't think a king's going to behave this way. And yet, he's the greatest king. 
There's treasure in that seeming trash. Because when you look at the cross, a king's ransom has been paid, a crown has been laid upon his head, and a victory has been shared with us with an open door that will never be shut again. Amen?